Parole Podcast avec moi, Alexandra Niamoyavoyou. Today I'm glad to bring you some knowledge that most of us, some most of us, let me just say that, didn't know we needed. My guest is Faida Jair, a Congolese British woman, the founder of Freedom is Mine. She is a YouTube influencer who brings hidden gems about the African diaspora on her channel. For those of you who may not know it yet, I started Parole because I wanted to hear from fellow Africans on and outside the continent. And with my research, I learned that there are African communities on every continent and in the most surprising places. Come Faida, who opens up our eyes to the history of black people. Slavery, colonialism are part of the African history, but it's not what defines our future. On a personal note, when I scroll through her videos, I aim to find the most unexpected places and I'm always blown away. A black samurai. Yes, you heard that right. A polished general. It is my belief that when I know where I'm from, I tend to know where I'm going. So far, after having listened to this episode, go on Freedom Is Mine YouTube, subscribe and interact with her in the comment section. No trolls please, because we do not have time for that. You can also follow her Instagram page, Freedom Is Mine. Let's talk about books for a second. I'd like to introduce you to my book club. No, I'm kidding. I do not have time for that as well. But I would like to share a book about Congo. Written by Marianne Murikatete, Aha follows the story of Nyanjuru, the daughter of an unconventional single mother from a traditional Congolese village who was not raised to respect the rules. Talk about a trailer. The good news is that Marianne will be a guest of Power Podcast. Before you listen to her episode, order her book online or in a bookstore and share her work. Let's celebrate African authors, media entrepreneurs in any way we can. The new season, I'll be bringing more women on the podcast because it took me a year to get a roster of 10 women and I'm so proud of myself. Parole is on Instagram. I am on Twitter. Parole is on Spotify, Apple, Google, Good Pods. That describes itself as the Instagram for podcasts. And this is where I learn to listen to more podcasts. I do not discriminate and listen to other people's work. Let me know if you have a person in mind you would like to hear from, or and I'll do my best actually to harass that person until he or she comes on the show. Cheers. Parole podcast. Parole podcast with uh, Faida. Avec Faida. Can we start with French? Oh! <laughs> Un peu? Ok, si tu veux. Un peu beaucoup? Alors, tu parles français. Tu parles un petit peu le français. <laughs> bon, tu écris en tout cas super bien français, donc euh, tu es bilingue, au moins bilingue. Enfin, J'ai étudié le français à, à l'école et mon père est congolais. Mais ça fait longtemps que je n'ai pas parlé en vrai. Enfin, 5-6 ans. Oh, ça va. Je pensais que tu disais 15 ans. Ça, ça va. 5-6 ans, you can still, you know, you can still yeah. come back. Mais c'est cool. Enfin, je ne dirais pas que je suis bilingue, mais j'entends bien le français. Je peux regarder un film avec des sous-titres en français ou une série. J'ai euh... vu Lupin. Lupin. <rire> Est-ce que tu peux aller à Paris et Parler avec les Parisiens. Oui, je crois, je crois. En franglais. Ça va. 
Donc, tu parles français, parce que le plus dur, c'est les, les personnes qui te disent, mais je parle français, mais sauf à Paris. You're like, <rire> get it. <rire> Moi, je ne savais pas que, que, que de Paris, there's another name, ça s'appelle le Panam. Panam, yeah. Ouais. Why? Vergon, Verlon. Ah, ok, ok. Yeah, c'est l'argot. Uh, you know, there's so many ways. I, I tend to say that when I came in France, my mom was like, you're losing your French. I'm like, no, no, but you don't get it. And she's like, no, 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 you're losing your proper French. <laughs> and then we communicated. She's like, what is that sentence? So I forget about, so you have frère, sir, sir, which is frère, frère, I totally forget. And there's some, some other words that sound not well in English because it doesn't sound well, but Panam, Panam, uh, Yeah, Paris. Melon is fascinating to me because we don't really have an equivalent in English. And uh, when I was starting, when I was in school and um, I was learning like small words in Valon, I was like, it's kind of logical. <laughs> it, is. it is definitely. It makes no sense. <laughs> Honestly, I think the only time when I felt great about the Verlon was uh, I, I saw a documentary on France 2 and it was about uh, Mozart. So mm. Mozart. Mm -hmm. he spoke French and he was writing some stuff in Verlon so mm -hmm. that people will not understand, you know, steal his ideas or something like that. So he's like literally writing proper Verlon. Like a so code? Like, like code something. And you're like, so there's nothing new under the sun. And oh. Mozart did it. So <laughs> That is fascinating. That was pretty cool. So I look at the mom it's like, <laughs> FYI, <laughs> we're doing the right thing. So Voilà, we're fridging it up a little bit because it's about parole. Uh, for those who are trying to put it in English, it's parole, but um, it's still parole. Madame Vaida, who are you and where are you at at the moment, actually? Ooh, uh, so I'm in London, UK. I hobby as a YouTuber and I have a YouTube channel called Freedom is Mine, which I'm hoping we will discuss today. <laughs> yes, please, because uh, there's two things. It's called freedom in there and... I like to think that I'm a free woman. I, I like to think that uh, physically and emotionally. Nowadays, with the political thing happening in Europe, I'm not sure if freedom is really the name for it, but let's not get in there. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, great question. So yeah, I'm from London, UK, and I'm mixed. So my one half of my family on my mother's side is white British. Mm -hmm. And then my dad is from um, Congo, DRC. Which area? Kinshasa. He's from Kinshasa, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually, uh, I'm not sure how big the Congolese community is in um, in London, but there's, there's, we're here. <laughs> I mean, you guys are everywhere. We're everywhere. <laughs> and you know what's so funny is one time I was I was on holiday in Paris. Oh, no, no, Paris. <laughs> yeah, I went to like a market and they were selling t-shirts with the Congolese flag. So I just bought one because I was like, yes, represent. And then everyone started speaking to me in Lingala. And I was like, no! <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we, we're around. And, um, yeah, mixed heritage, but raised mainly by the British side of my family. Then when I went to university, um, I spent some time in Mexico and traveling around different Latin American countries. So after I graduated, I went to, like, Colombia, Cuba... Puerto Rico, Peru, Bolivia, Panama, lots of places. 
I just really fell in love with the continent of Latin America. And it was amazing to me because I connected with so many black communities that I didn't even realize existed. Because I feel like when we think of Latin America, we think of, you know, Shakira, Jay Balvin, uh, Ricky Martin, J-Lo, Pitbull, and we're not really celebrating black Latino talent. So for me, it was a huge shock. Even places like Bolivia and Peru, when I was encountering black people, like indigenous black people, and to me, it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. That's really what started my love of engaging with the African diaspora wherever we are, because I really realized like black people, we are everywhere, but we're just not given, we're not made visible. Mm. So I was like, we have to make ourselves visible. And that's part of uh, why I decided to start my YouTube channel, Freedom is Mine. And I imagine part of the reason that you decided to start Parole to make these stories and these people and these communities more visible. Absolutely. I mean, I'm African, I'm Burindian, so most of the time nobody knows where the country is. But That's say, shocking to me. Please be be shocked because I, I, I met some Nigerian chick and I'm not going to say her name because, I, one, I don't remember her name and it was at church, so I'm trying to be the good Christian here. And she said, Burundi, but is it a country? I said, lady, you're from Nigeria. And then I, I tried to locate it and I was like super shocked and she said, I'm Oh, but you guys are so small. Like, you know, like, are you even alive? I'm like, see? <laughs> so the problem is not the others. The problem is starts with Africans. We don't even know what's up. So, yeah, I don't And then I guess it's even worse when you came to Europe with people saying, Burundi, where's that? <laughs> no, you know, the funny thing is that when you say Burundi, so when you say it in English, it's like Burgundy. It's like mm-hmm. Bourgogne. Mm-hmm. And people tend to be like, oh, okay, she's from Bourgogne. I'm like, no. no when you say <laughs> French it's maybe because you say it's like quickly it's like ah, I'm from Burundi je suis de Burundi mm-hmm. and people are like I didn't understand the whole thing but I will assume it's like Bourg Bourg something so Burkina Faso mm. and you're like so I just told you that I was from the east side and then you realize nobody knows and nowadays I tend to say so I'm from Burundi Burundi Afrique de l'Est à côté du Rwanda à côté du Kenya à côté de la Tanzanie and they're like okay 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 i see so that is uh but still they probably couldn't find it on a map i you you know what i mean like <laughs> they every day i'm saying google maps is here for us <laughs> yes i have google earth yeah and it shows my house back home oh wow. you know what i mean like why can't you just google like just yeah just google where it is so yeah i mean imagine me so uh, congo drc very big country oh yeah and um even in the uk sometimes and i'll be like yeah my family's from congo when people are like oh where's that <laughs> oh come no come on don't say that because of you know that huge country in the middle of africa and they're like no <laughs> it's like five times france ten times uk honestly uh, people ask me where's that and i'm like okay here we go but it's good because we're out here doing the work teaching people I always feel like I mean all of us have so much to learn and I always feel like you have to teach people with patience and with kindness and um, that's the philosophy I try to apply to my (laughs) my teaching online sometimes in the YouTube comments it gets a bit heated but I always try you know 
be diplomatic with people. <laughs> See, you should do like a podcast. Nobody's sending comments yes, or at exactly. least DMs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. True. <laughs> that is great. But how do you feel then? Because, I mean, and for me, on, on my on both sides of my family, I can say like we're Burundians, 10 generations. And what does it feel to be mixed race in the UK? And with a country like Congo. So imagine for people who know what Congo is, they'll be like, oh, okay, Congo, okay, sure. Oh, but then you see the face, you know, oh, yeah. Mobutu, oh, Kabila, and you're like, uh, oh, diamonds, oh, your iPhones and Samsungs and... <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, it's a great question. I think being mixed race in the UK, my experience, I have a certain privilege in the sense of I've always lived in London, which is an extremely, extremely multicultural city um, in the same way that Paris is, in the same way that New York is, for example. So growing up amongst different ethnicities, I think, you know, we, we call ourselves ethnic minorities, but I believe in this city we're actually the majority. <laughs> so I was kind of protected in that sense. But it was interesting growing up, navigating, and still now, you know, as a woman nearly 30 years old, navigating my space, both adjacent to the white community, adjacent to the black community, but kind of not fully accepted by either. I would never be accepted by the white community as being one of them, ever. And the black community, I still, even though, you know, I, I, I consider myself a mixed race woman I consider myself a black woman but um, I do receive a lot of pushback and resistance sometimes in the YouTube comments sometimes you know when things people say about my place as a mixed race woman half white woman in the black you know educational sphere and what I have the right or not to speak on and I'm always conscious of my place, you know, but it's something that has definitely been instilled in me by other people at, at times is that I'm not a part of the community. So some that hurts. Yeah, it hurts. Not, not <laughs> but at the same time, I do believe in what I'm doing and I believe that it's positive. I should probably explain what Freedom is Mine is. So Freedom is Mine is a YouTube channel uh, where I make videos and I speak about the history of the African diaspora in different countries. So each video focuses on black communities and black history in a different country. So wherever, literally from Peru to India, to Russia, to China, South Korea, Iran. I mean, <laughs> I just made a video on Palestine, my next wow. video on Poland. I just did one on the Philippines. So really that's what I mean when I say black people are everywhere. And we have a history and we have communities that exist to this day that are so rich and resilient and beautiful. But honestly, even a lot of other black people, when you talk about black people in um, Bolivia or black people in Poland, a lot of other black people don't realize that those communities exist and that yeah. they have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and that, and you know, even our community, the black community, is unaware of the contribution that we have made throughout history to so many of these nations that we reside in across the diaspora. So that, for me, is what I try to do. So if you go to 
the YouTube channel, Freedom is Mine. The handle is Freedom is Mine Official because someone already took Freedom. And <laughs> <laughs> then you're the official one. So. The one, honey. Hello. So you can literally find like pretty much any country that you mm-hmm. that you care to across Europe, Asia, the Middle East. That uh, is crazy. I, I tend to think that I have a great general knowledge. But like watching some of your videos, I was like, no, <laughs> you know, when you're like, no, I hate, I hate. <laughs> like, <laughs> black people. Over there. Because the thing is, like, take this, you grew up, I grew up with history channel. So most of the things that you have are like the white perspective. So I remember hearing or watching something when I was younger about this German, German community. Mm-hmm. After World War, they kind of moved to Argentina, you know, Latin America, and they still have, they still speak German. Yeah. They still look German because they read among themselves and, you know, the white hair, blonde, blue eyes, and not even sure if they speak Spanish at this point. And I remember just being global. I was like, oh, okay. In Brazil, there's a big German enclave and they have their, their own festivals. Um, they speak German, they look German, but they are, you know, settled in Brazil. And I just did a video on Monday, which was about the, do you know Kazal in Haiti? No. So there's a Polish town in Haiti. Oh yeah, I saw the video, but I didn't look at it yet. So this was because during the, so obviously the French Revolution um, inspired the Haitian Revolution, led by Toussaint Louverture, the Polish a Polish legion was sent by uh, Napoleon Bonaparte as part of the French legion to Haiti. And that included a black Polish general who I also have a video on called Vladislav Jablonowski, who was Polish and black and a military general. And they were sent to Haiti to try and suppress the Haitian revolution. But uh, many, many, I think uh, over 5,000 Polish soldiers were sent to Haiti. 5,200 to be specific. All of them except 400 died of yellow fever. And then the 400 surviving Polish soldiers, they actually really connected with the Haitian people because just as the black Haitians were fighting for their freedom, Poland also had a history of fighting for their freedom from the, the Russian Federation. So they identified with these black enslaved Af- Afro-Haitians and they said, no, our struggle is the same. Like we also want to be free. So then these po- 400 Polish legionnaires sided, they deserted the French and Polish army. They sided with the Haitians and they helped contribute to the success of the Haitian revolution, which let's remind the people was the first country in the Western hemisphere to abolish slavery in 1804 and the only country in history to be in modern history to be founded from an an uprising of enslaved Africans. So there was a Polish contribution to this history. And as a result, obviously when um, the Haitians won and it was uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines who became the first uh, sovereign leader of Haiti in 1804, and he pretty much ordered the massacre of all of the white Europeans on the island of Haiti. But the Polish were spared because he said, and I quote, he called them the Negroes of Europe. Jean-Jacques Dessalines said that the Polish were the Negroes of Europe. 
and he said that because they had helped fight in the Haitian Revolution, they would be granted full Haitian citizenship. And they created a settlement called Kazal, which exists to this day. And when you go to Kazal, you can see pictures online if you just Google. Or you can see my video even better. Yes, please. That's, that's better. <laughs> you know, these are Haitians that are very light skinned, blue eyes, light hair, because they are Haitian, but they are of Polish heritage. So mm -hmm. this is what I mean about this, this fascinating, all of these fascinating aspects of history that really are not taught to us in school, which I really felt like when I was, I was so interested in finding out all about these black communities in different countries and all of this black history, I couldn't find a resource that really brought all of those stories from all of those countries together on the same platform. So you can find a documentary about Turkey, black history in Turkey. You can find a documentary about black history in France, for example. But I wanted to bring all of these together on the same platform and to make this information accessible to people and to make sure that it was free. Um, so that's really why I started the YouTube channel. And I never say I'm very diligent in my research and I'm a, a researcher, documentary researcher at the moment as my job. I always, I never say like I'm a historian. I never say I'm a journalist. I really say this is a hobby. This is something that I do like in my free time, but I really hope that it resonates with people. And um, me as an educator as well, I'm always aware that I'm speaking about communities that I'm not necessarily directly a part of. And so yeah. I always want to be conscious of not putting words into people's mouths or speaking over people's experiences. And then there are times where you know, if my work, something is inaccurate or if it's not necessarily balanced, people respond to me in the comments and I really take okay. it on board and try to amend my work and adjust my perspective. So I really feel like the YouTube channel is a body of work that is constantly in evolution. I've learned so much and hopefully other people learn from it too. And I think even you were saying that you'd seen things that you didn't necessarily know before about um, black communities in different places. And that's the goal, really. It's just to um, to shine a light on these communities and these stories. Absolutely. But before we go further, I would like to ask, uh, unfortunately, we've seen what's happened um, like uh, a couple of weeks uh, to the Haitian president who got assassinated. Yeah. When you look at the country, even as a black person, I'm like, I don't know something positive. I, I, I can't tell you one thing that is positive about the country other than obviously the historical slavery stuff. But mm -hmm. then from there, you're like, everything went crazy. Yeah. And so many informations, you know. But at the end of the day, I wonder if even Haitian people do have that information, like the Polish side of, you know, mm. um, if it is like general knowledge for them, mm -hmm. or is it like breaking news? Oh, you have a... I think I'd obviously have to ask a Haitian for their perspective, but it probably really just depends because I can only speak for the UK and maybe you can um, tell me a bit about what your um, schooling was like in Burundi in terms mm -hmm. of history. But in the UK, obviously, a majority white country with a very um, ugly colonial past. In school, when we're taught about our history, we're really predominantly taught the side of things that really glorify British history and the perspective. And when it comes to the colonial history, really there's not too much time dedicated to the perspective of, you know, the negative things that the British did, both in war in you know, in colonizing other countries and really the legacy of that today. Mm -hmm. And 
I think there tends to be a perspective in the UK of like, oh, you know, these African countries or these Asian countries where the, where Britain once was, um, you know, they need to sort themselves out. And, and actually there's very little acknowledgement given for the fact that we as, you know, a British nation played a pivotal role in why certain countries suffer from the destability that they, they have today. So I think there's kind of, there's not enough accountability and I really do think that the way in which we teach our history in the UK is a, a huge part of that and a huge failing. And I think there's now um, organizations that are pushing very hard for black history to be part of the curriculum in British schools. But I mean, you can maybe tell me more about your perspective, you know, in Burundi and what that was like. It was, it was um, the thing is, when I speak about my own experience, it's quite different from the, uh, the, the average Burundian, but let me speak about the private school that, that attended. Mm -hmm. So for the majority of my schooling, I went to the international school. So it's a, it's a Burundian school, but with an international basically system, mm -hmm. you know. So I can tell you that <laughs> learning about history and geography, we're proud of like learning about what happened in Ethiopia, you know, Egypt. We know it's part of Africa. You know, we, it's just a fact, like you can say whatever you say on TV, on History Channel, Disney or Discovery or whatever. We do know our history. So we're like, mm, no, uh, Pharaoh or Ramses was in this city and it was in this place. Alexandria is in Africa. I went to the Belgian school for um, the last two years. It was still there. It was still maybe because the Belgian school, we, we've been colonized by Belgium. So I think the colony knew enough that we don't take crap from, yeah. <laughs> you know, information. And we knew about ourselves. Like, as I said, I have 10 generation, you know, I know where I'm from. So mm -hmm. it, the history of slavery was never, never happened in Burundi. And thank, you know, by God's grace. Mm -hmm. But the way we learn about what was happening outside was more like they were changing the narrative, but it's okay because they are the victory. Like, it is fine. It, it makes sense because you're the one who, who are writing the books. But I never really, when you read about colonialism, I mean, it's sad. My parents have been through colonial times, you know. My grandfather fought for the colonial, against the colonialism. Yes. So Living history. It's, it's part of history. So it's not like every Sunday we'll be having dinner or lunch and we'll be talking about it. But my dad, my grandfather um, you know, was involved in politics. He was a prime minister. So those are the things you listen, you hear, and you're like, oh, maybe your time was not really fun. Mm. But one thing that he did was never to teach us how, how to hate the other, the other meaning a Congolese, a Belgian, a German, an American, or the white person, or the Indian, because we have a huge Indian community. And I feel like this is something that, for me, I take from my education back home, and it starts from the family. But to say that we didn't know, no, for most of us, we know what happened for, during the First World War, yeah. the Second World War. As I said, like the German side where you're like, man, you know, royal family members in the UK, some of them being involved in a, with the Germans, mm -hmm. that was not really well known, you know? In most fact, the in the UK, they actively suppressed that information because See? they thought that it, that it would um, damage popular opinion of the British royal family. So I think in the UK, obviously, being a former colonial power, that has very much influenced our education system to this yeah. day. And um, that's one reason why I, so I'm sure you know the, the saying, 
the lion tells his story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And I think that's what we what we're trying to do is we are the lion mm-hmm. telling his story. We're reclaiming our narrative um, because the tale of the hunt will no longer glorify the hunter because that's not the full story. Um, so we're reclaiming we're reclaiming our narratives. And yes, please. So important because if it's not going to be done in schools and like our children are not going to be taught, we in well I can only speak from a you know a British European perspective, but we weren't taught and children are not being taught now. So we have to be the ones to take that into our own hands, and that's really what I wanted to accomplish with this YouTube channel, um, which is why I'm so delighted. Like when yeah, you out to me and you're like I'm from Burundi and I'm based in France, and I'm like hey, this is really starting to gain some international. <laughs> <laughs> And it has to, because let let me tell you what I saw, because I was uh, in London for the first time last year in February. Mm -hmm. So picture this, never been there, but I know the history, obviously. I was there for some like three days and uh, business trip. And I stayed at the um, Intercontinental Hotel. It's, it was, I think it's in the, I can't even, near Hyde Park, basically on Park Lane. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, when I go there, I'm like super stressed and like tired. And then I take a nap and then I go out. And the first thing that I do while I'm taking like a, a walk outside, I see these huge murals where you can see like India, um, Pakistan, and all these like imperial, you know, legacy. Mm-hmm. And maybe because I've been living in France this whole time, I was like, what? You're taking. And I was super sure. And I was like, geez, it's beautiful, but good Lord, what is this? Mm. You know? Oh, yeah, I was walking towards uh, West, um, no, West Mid, uh, Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. I was like, Lord, help me. I, I don't get it. And mm. then I'm trying to put my like British understanding, like the, yeah. not French, just not French, because mm, it will go down like Algeria, Senegal, <laughs> you know, uh, this country, Vietnam. I'm like, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's funny. I think, I mean, did you think the mural was positive? It was a positive representation or what, what was your impression? You could sense like we remember, mm. you know, uh, but uh, I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I <was> shocked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because see the thing, every time I go to Brussels, mm-hmm. you see uh, King uh, Leopold, and let's not talk about Leopold in the Congo, for example. Mm. And you go there, you're like, okay, that's, you know, it's his country. It's mm. not Burundi. It's not Congo. It's okay. But you have to walk there. I can only imagine what it, it has to be if you're from Congo yeah. and you live there and you have double nationality. Yeah. It's really tough. Although yeah. officially when you're Congolese, you can't have two nationalities. It's heavy, you mm. know. And then going to friends where history with Algeria it's really tough you know oh, the tough. fact that President Macron just accepted basically the, the genocide the, the, they played a huge role in the genocide in Rwanda yeah. in itself is huge yeah. but there's some things you know we have to take care of afterwards mm. uh, the UK it still is it was imperial so it was huge number of countries and I guess somehow you should be thankful for the Commonwealth at some point. I don't know, you know. Um, but I was, to be honest, I was like, this is, oh. so I don't know how you feel about it. Like when you look at these murals. Uh, 
I still feel like I think it's great that attention is being drawn to the contribution of the Commonwealth and I guess um, you know the contribution of former I really hate the term but like colonial territories of the, the UK like the what people from those territories brought and contributed to the British Empire and to Britain as a nation more attention is being given to that and rightfully so but at the same time I still do feel like we're very selective about our memory very selective about our history um the full story is still not being told and uh there is still a long long way to go and I don't know if you were aware of what happened with uh the European Championships in football like maybe two or three weeks ago so in the finals the final actually it was um Britain versus Italy and it was a very this was maybe three weeks ago and it was a very very close match um I think it was like maybe one one yeah Italy had a goal UK had a goal yeah and it went down to penalties and the obviously there's five penalty kicks on both sides and the final three kicks for the UK were three black British footballers very young very talented but very young and they all were black men all three of them missed the penalties and the racist backlash that they received online was just absolutely abhorrent the one thing that did warm my heart was that there was a counter wave of British people who then flooded their social media channels with so much support and love and anti-racist rhetoric because they were like we don't want you to think that these few racist hateful people are representative of our of Britain as a whole but it was just one of those things where it was like I think I saw a meme where it was like if you score a penalty you're British and if you miss a penalty you're black and it's like okay so ethnic minority people in in the UK are only accepted as long as they are useful to the white majority and it's just a time and time and time again we are reminded as people of color in this country that our our britishness is conditional there's terms and conditions um and it was just yeah it was a whole thing so there there is more there is good work being done and valuable work being done but there is a long way to go mm. and i imagine the same is probably true in france as well ooh it's so sad. when it comes to sports like uh it's funny because even in like in tennis you know which should be like uh, and you have like Jules Fritz-Sollinger mm. every time he wins he's like so French he's like from this small town in small village in France he, yeah I mean couldn't be more French other than Songa on the name yeah <laughs> and the moment he like you know it's like but it's not only him it always happens I don't know if it is a French way of thinking things but It happened even with a uh, tennis woman that I really admire, whose name is Mary Pierce. Mm. Mary Pierce is French, Canadian French. Mm-hmm. Uh, she speaks with a slight American accent in, in French. Every time she won, she was so French. Mm. And then the moment she's losing, or you know, and I, I, and then I started to be like, I wonder if they do that only with black people or they do that with everyone. As long as you're mixed race and you're like, French and Belgian oh you lose so you're Belgian <laughs> you know you're not part of but it's true that it is it, you know it is what it is in football I mean maybe 99 I'll just say 95% of the team is from Africa in some ways mm. 
So we do see that. And I was watching actually the, the Euro final cheering for England and I'm not gonna lie, I was the <laughs> I was in the room with friends and then the first penalty was off and I was like, ooh, it's gonna hurt on Twitter. <laughs> it's gonna hurt on Twitter. But I was still expecting England to win. The second one I was like, ooh, this is bad. This is bad for them. And but this is a crazy question I'm gonna ask you. Maybe don't we expect those racist things? Don't yeah. we do. We- like the minute it happened already, I was like, I feel <laughs> I feel in my bones that it's going to go down on social media and my flatmate who's white she was like no I don't think so and I was like wait just wait three two one and then it started <laughs> and we knew we knew the we moment knew. that it happened yeah. we knew it. so it's I mean it's we can laugh about it but it's also sad that we have such low expectations um, of the way that our community is going to be treated but um in a way i'm glad that these discussions are happening and i'm also glad that it's being put out publicly on social media because before when people were racist they could really be racist in private and there were no repercussions whereas now if people are putting it on social media there are repercussions for them and um you know people were arrested over the abuse that they published online in the uk arrests were made and so it was a sign that you know the police were taking it seriously and that social media platforms were taking it seriously as well um yeah uh, to answer your question we definitely knew (laughs) exactly and for me i'm I'm gonna even push it at maybe because i don't know let me just say this even with megan markle of course i was like poor her (laughs) i'm I'm talking before the wedding you know I was like, poor you, lady. But it's fine. You just have to deal with it. I don't know. And, uh, you know, but we expected it. And then it went the way it went. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. So um, for any listeners that aren't too familiar with the story, obviously, there's two uh, British princes. There's Prince William and Prince Harry, who are the grandparents of the current reigning queen. And um, Prince William is the oldest, and he married a white woman called uh, Kate Middleton. And, you know, it was the most beautiful thing this country had ever seen. And their children are so precious, and she's so wonderful, and et cetera, et cetera. And then the younger son, Prince Harry, he married an African-American woman, um, mixed race woman called Meghan Markle. And then all of a sudden, it was just like disgusting. And how dark are their children going to be? And um, you know, she just wants him for his money and this isn't true love and et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously they ended up leaving the UK, uh, which was called Mexit. <laughs> and um, this huge debate erupted about whether the British monarchy was institutionally racist, which I'm like, is that even a question? Yeah, it was just, and there was a big difference in the media coverage that um, William and Kate received, and then the media coverage that um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle received. So, I mean, yeah, again, time and time again, these questions are coming up, and I'm like, how can people be so naive to think that race is not a part of this discussion in 2021? Like, it's very much at the center of the discussion still. It's, uh, it was... I, I personally do believe, maybe as an outsider, mm. I do believe that the, not the mainstream media, but like the, the, the tabloids or the, whatever they, they are, first they're not journalists because let's be real, 
seriously, <laughs> but they hit where it hurts the most, you know? So if it is race, that is your weak part. It's, it's, they're going to shoot there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and for me, I remember just being like, oh man, that this guy, okay. He's put this in perspective. He is marrying mm. a woman. He married, sorry. Mm. A woman who's mixed race. Mm-hmm. physically kind of looks like a white person yeah yeah all right and and at some point as africans we i was having conversations with friends and we were like imagine if the chick was african and like senegalese pearl you know like dark hair dogs beautiful dark skin it was like no you will die uh, <laughs> literally yeah, will hang you on whatever i feel like megan markle was like the starter <laughs> like the apparel. exactly it's a great then, starter it, by the way she looks good yeah yeah she's yeah she's a very beautiful woman but i feel like she's the starter and you know maybe somewhere down the line we'll have you know a, a black fully black british uh monarch but anyway we'll see it will be interesting and i can't wait to see what's happening and because africans we do things great let's talk about how we colonize no not colonize (laughs) we influence other spaces so my first uh area of non-expertise definitely will be the afro diaspora in i don't have drum rolls but (laughs) there you go in denmark Yes. So Denmark is an interesting one because a lot of people don't know that Denmark participated in the transatlantic slave trade. It was the seventh biggest uh, trading power in the transatlantic slave trade. And Denmark had three major colonial territories in the Caribbean, which are now today known as the U.S. Virgin Islands because they were sold to the United States in, I think, 1917. But they were St. Croix, St. Thomas, um, I think it was St. John, but those three islands. And so they, Denmark trafficked 100,000 enslaved Africans in total um, to those regions in the Caribbean. But then also by proxy, there was an enslaved African presence actually in Denmark. And so, yeah, this is a part of the history of the Caribbean and also of Denmark that a lot of people don't really know about. And um, what's interesting is that there was a famous case of Hans Jonathan. I think maybe you saw it in my video, but for people who don't know, Hans Jonathan was um, a mixed heritage, Afro-descendant, enslaved man who was born on the island of St. Croix. And he was um, taken to Denmark as a a young man, as a child, um, with the family who, you know, who, for lack of a better word, owned him. And he ended up eventually in Denmark joining the Navy and he fought in the Danish Navy and, you know, he fought bravely and he was commended by the royal family. But after his naval service came to an end, he was then told that he would go back into being, he would go back into slavery. And he was like, hell no, like, uh uh-uh. So he took his um, slave owning family to court in Denmark and said, look, like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going back there. Um, You know, I fought in the Navy. I fought for this country. I put my life on the line. You're not going to do that to me. And he actually lost the case. He was not successful. The Danish court ruled that he would go back into slavery and that he would continue to belong to that family, the Schimmelman family. And um, he escaped to Iceland and uh, he escaped to a town called Djupavort, 
which I've never visited, but it looks beautiful. Um, uh, Iceland, man. Yeah. yeah, like a small, like Icelandic picturesque town. And he married um, a Danish woman and he had three kids and he worked in the postal office and he had a, a quiet, peaceful life as a free black man in Iceland. I think 2018 it was, um, there was a DNA company that, that DNA testing company that did, um, they tested some of, uh, to see if his DNA as an African, you know, Afro-descendant man was still present um, in Denmark. And that they identified that he had like thousand descendants in, in Iceland. So his, you know, heritage still continues to this day. And it's amazing because in Iceland, he's really remembered as something of a hero that, you know, resisted slavery and resisted colonialism and, um, you know, started this life in Iceland. But in Denmark, his story is not really told because obviously for them, it's quite... But yeah, lots of Black history in Denmark. And um, one more fact that I really wanted to share with the viewers is that in on the island of St. Croix, the leader of the largest... Um, labor revolt in Danish colonial history was a woman called Mary Thomas who led um yeah she led a labor revolt of um they weren't enslaved uh Afro you know Afro-Caribbeans in in St. Croix but they had recently been emancipated but basically were still living under the same conditions of slavery and she organized um what was called like fireburn riots because there were these huge riots that she participated in and organized and 50 plantations were burned down, Danish plantations were burned down. And she was sent to prison for life for her participation in the riots. In 2018, there was a statue unveiled in Copenhagen, Denmark, which you can visit, um, called I Am Queen Mary. And it's a statue of Queen Mary, this black woman who organized this labor revolt. And it was the first statue in Denmark to commemorate a black woman and um, it's just an incredible statue. That is crazy. Denmark has, Denmark has its black history, even though the black community in Denmark is maybe smaller than in other European countries, and their history is super valid and super important. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that one resonated with you. Yeah. It's so interesting to make. And I was reaching out to all of these, you know, black Danish people, because obviously I have to ask permission to use people's images in the video. Um, and they were so happy to be involved because I feel like, you know, not necessarily a lot of international attention is given to the black community in Denmark. So it was a joy to be a part of, really. So I was telling her that I have a friend who's part Danish and part Burundian. And growing up, it was a joke. It was like, who is black over there? <laughs> you know, like three people and it's your family and it's currently living in Burundi because, you know. But uh, yeah, it's interesting because at the end of the day, like, we see the, the like the Nordic side of Europe as you know they do their own thing. You mm. never hear when we talk about slavery, we're like, yeah, Portugal, yeah, Spain, yeah, da, da. Okay. Like, say that again. You're like, Denmark, like where, how? Yeah, a hundred thousand enslaved Africans trafficked by Denmark. Let us not forget. <laughs> so interesting. And for those who don't know, the Middle East, my friend. They're doing a slavery thing among, uh, you know, they, they came and picked people in Africa, not in Burundi, though. So it's not a problem of Europeans only, but uh, geography, geography. Sad, sad. But Queen Mary, we'll visit that one. Yeah. It's on the list. Uh, Mary Thomas, I mean, it's that is, that, is, that is great. 
And then, of course, <laughs> okay, now it makes sense because it's like slavery and you're like, okay, I'm putting everything together. Mm. Afro-diaspora in South Korea. <laughs> yes, South Korea. So African diaspora in South Korea. So in South Korea, they really, it wasn't like China, where China had a very ancient trade with Africa, which did include the trade of human beings. So there have been enslaved Africans in China for hundreds of years. They were called Kunlun. Check out the video. Um, South Korea was different in the sense of South Korea, the African diaspora really started emerging in significant numbers in the 1950s during the Korean War. So uh, North Korea and South Korea uh, went to war against each other. This was before, obviously, they became independent states. And North Korea was supported by the USSR and China. And South Korea was supported by the UN and also the United States of America. So the United States of America began deploying servicemen in South Korea, which included African-American battalions. And the African-American servicemen, many of them had children with local South Korean women. So they ended up, there ended up being a whole generation of Afro-Korean children born in the 50s. And when South Korea became an independent nation, at the time, it was a very hom ethnically homogenous country and still is to a certain extent to this day. And there was a lot of racism, anti-Black racism towards these Afro-Korean children, these half-Black children. And so many mothers were giving up their children for adoption because there was like social taboo that they had Black children. And these children were put in um, orphanages and in what were called half-blood schools. They had segregated schooling. And a lot of them endured really appalling conditions. You know, they were treated awfully. And so the US actually ended up staging uh, something of an intervention and they appealed to families in the US, particularly African-American families, to adopt these um, mixed race Korean half black children. So there was a whole generation of Afro-Koreans that were adopted by and raised by black families in the United States, some of whom I had the honor and the pleasure to communicate with in the making of the, the video. That's how the African diaspora kind of emerged in the 1950s. And obviously these children now are in their you know, 60s mm -hmm. and a lot of them have done DNA tests to try and reconnect with their Korean family back home. Some successfully, others not. But nowadays the Korea, African diaspora in Korea tends to be more like students or people that move for business. There's a really famous Korean model called, um, I think he's Han Shan Min. I think I, I see what you mean. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's a, he's a catwalk model in Korea, um, black. And he, he, well, he's like super famous. He's acting now. I see him on Netflix. I'm like, you go, Han. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, one of my favorite stories is actually, there's a, uh, there's a TV personality called... Um, uh, Jonathan, he's called the Congo Prince, and he's my favorite because he's from, uh, originally from Democratic Republic of the Congo. Represent. Um, he moved to South Korea with his Congolese family when he was eight years old, and because there wasn't a whole load of like black families living in Korea at the time, they actually got their own TV show, which show it was like Meet the Kardashians. But <laughs> like for this Congolese family in Korea. And obviously at this point, he's now lived in Korea for many more, much longer in Korea than he mm -hmm. had in Congo. So he, you know, speaks 
fluent Korean and identifies as Korean, but he's this black man. He's a huge media sensation. Check out um, Jonathan Congo Prince on the <laughs> because if you want to see black Koreans living their best life he's a great example <laughs> I mean it's so funny I, I, I'm not gonna lie there's like this huge hype around South Korea uh, when it comes to like uh, pop culture and everything yeah. uh, I have a friend who, who went last year uh, forget the COVID stuff uh, who went uh, a year uh, as an exchange student and she's like French you know French black so from Ghana originally but she grew up born and raised in um in, in France and I was like why suffer like a South Korean why are you learning and she speaks fluent South Korean and I'm like South Korean she speaks Korean and I'm like why you went to school for this and he's like no but you know and then she gives me like all these k-pop thing and i have no yeah. idea yeah. and at some point she made a video when she came back she made a video about how South Koreans they were like portraying black people you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. and obviously when for me honestly I'm not naive I have to deal with microaggressions in France as well but most of the things I'm like you know what it's ignorance you mm -hmm. know you you don't know Africans and maybe you never really had a coffee with one or have mm -hmm. proper dinner so we're not like savages and you know mm -hmm. And she was sharing some stories how like it was really tough for her, for example, to rent an apartment, like crazy mm -hmm. racist stuff. And and then she comes home. She's like, we have this idea that Koreans are really nice, really no 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 no. She, they were dealing with lots of insults, yeah. and because Koreans did it, uh, he didn't expect them to speak proper Koreans. They were yeah. like, they didn't like, understand. Speeding at some point, like there's a, a late uh, an old lady you know respect to the to the elders mm. at the bus stop who like said something i'm not gonna repeat it but it's yeah. and then she like literally spilled on the floor like oh. i can't and these kids are like 2021 20, you know yeah They're you know what i will say though is that my impression obviously as an outsider but the impression I've got from um, speaking to Korean friends and so on and so forth is that there is a generational difference in the sense of younger Koreans now, so maybe our generation and younger, have a lot more exposure, thanks to the internet, to TV, social media, to people like Congo Prince or, you know, Jonathan, whoever it may be, or even, you know, people in Afri African-Americans, people in movies, hip-hop culture, which... I think hip hop culture is a big influence on K pop culture. And so now there's more of a kind of like meeting of worlds and meeting of perspectives. And that's not to invalidate the your your friend's experiences and her stories. And obviously that sounds horrific, but I like to think I'm hopeful that, you know, with each generation and as we become more international citizens, that there will be a lot more kind of understanding and for people to realize that, you know, black history and for example, Asian history or South Korean history specifically, they're not two separate things. You know, there are black Koreans, there have been for many, many years in the same way that there's a whole history of, you know, the hundreds of years of black history in China, there's hundreds of years of black history in Japan, all of these countries, they're not two separate things. You can be Japanese and black. Like one of my videos is on um, a Japanese samurai called Yasuke. And I'm always using these examples of like, you know, the two things are not mutually exclusive. Black and Asian history, they intertwine and it's a wonderful thing. So I really hope that as 
the internet exposes us to more and more of these stories that seeing each other's differences and start to see each other's you know shared history and absolutely and i will even invite for me it's like inviting more africans not even like westerners i'm like african first or african descent Mm -hmm. to be like know your history because the more you know yourself somebody can like attack you and be like you know what uh no i just know my like ethiopians i don't know if you've met ethiopians Mm -hmm. those are the like i have some close close friends and those like you can say everything and Mm -hmm. everything to just laugh yeah touch it off and you're like Ethiopia was no 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 they're like no we know and they're like no yeah. uh and then we talk about all these like in the western hemisphere we talk about having like uh women leaders and queens and you know who are leading countries in Ethiopia it's like they have a whole list yeah. <laughs> so like it's there there and you're like what what is this and they, because they know themselves so they're like and Burundi somehow, I, I should say that it's basically the same thing because you can say the crazy. Germany went to Burundi and tried to colonize the, the small country and they had guns and we had like, you know, no, almost nothing other than human capital. And we surrendered after eight years, you know. Mm. It's like for us, it's like, meh, you know, it's, it's, it's no, we managed. And then we became we we went into the belgian administration let's just say after the world war the world first world war so basically it's because germany lost that it was gifted by yeah the were split up and and um gifted exactly so you're like mm. pretty sure on the ground no belgian will have uh one i'm just saying anyway uh, <laughs> no that's true <laughs> yeah seriously and then let's put this fact uh, again because this is a this is really sad this is really sad for for even belgians to be honest you have a country like belgian colonized Rwanda and burundi and then congo so great congo mm-hmm. became a, a, a like propriété you know, like a personal garden to the king yeah. and you're like say that yeah. It's, it's called slavery it's like you you know you own human and dogs and animals and the land and the water and you're like so uh. it literally became his personal property like the concept <laughs> concept by itself is unimaginable and still now i'm like every time i'm reading about it i'm like I, i'm trying to understand but i'm like this is huge and uh, anyway so that's part of but because we know I think it hurts less. You know what I mean? It's like, you're like, yeah. yeah, I think there's a resilience and there's a strength that comes with just knowing. And I always say, like, if you know where you came from, you're better able to determine where you're going. And so that's why I think it's so important to, um, you know, really like share these stories and to be confident in our history. Yeah. And, and people in the beginning, I was getting a lot of criticism because obviously in my videos, speaking about the diaspora specifically, there is a lot of mention of the slave trade and of slavery. And I received a lot of criticism from black folks who were saying like, why do you speak on that? Because it's like, it's a negative aspect of our history. And I was like, no, you really need to look beyond that. Like there's so many stories of resilience and resistance of ingenuity. And I'm not just speaking about slavery. I'm speaking about, you know, black warriors, spies, kings, queens, whatever, you know, whatever profession, like, 
entertainers, circus performers, like anything. Like, you know, we've been there and we've done it. And we've, in the most extraordinary circumstances, we have triumphed. And so I'm really encouraging people to look beyond like the stereotypical narratives and to really challenge their understanding of what blackness is and what blackness looks like. Because when I'm talking, especially about like, I wanna say countries that we don't instinctively associate with black communities. So for example, when I'm talking about the black population in India or Pakistan or Bolivia, which has its own black monarchy, by the way, Peru, um, Iran, like all of these, Poland even, Denmark, all of these countries where people don't necessarily associate those places with black history. And I'm like, no, you need to, we as black people need to widen our understanding and our perception of what blackness looks like, because you can be Chinese and black, you can be Indian and black, you can be Russian or Polish and black, you know, and those two things are not mutually exclusive, they go hand in hand. And so it's really trying to yeah, broaden in the international perspective of blackness, but also within our own community of what blackness looks, looks like. Absolutely. Let me just, because you, you spoke about Russia and I'm reminded that there is this author, world-renowned author called Pushkin. Alexander Pushkin. Alexander Pushkin. And it's funny because there are two uh, writers that I knew about like, when I was younger. So Alexandre Dumas and Alexander Pushkin. Hmm, there is something about the Alex. Ooh, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Actually, you should say there's something about Alex because do you know Alessandro de Medici? The Medici, the Rafami de Medici? Yeah, like the, he, so Alessandro de Medici was the first Duke of Florence and he was half black as well. So then there is something about the Alex. I Call me Duchess. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. But, but you know the thing is because, you know, as you said, you know, you know French people. So French history is like, oh, no, no, no. And then when you see a picture of Alexandre Dumas, you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Give me a second. He's mixed race? <laughs> Yeah. I remember the shock, you know, and then you, the moment you realize, I can't talk. Yeah, the dude is mixed. was mixed race, yeah. you know, and he's uh, in the same way with Alexandre Dumas. His great grandfather was a military, um, a great military leader. Exactly. That's the same for Alexandre Pushkin. His great grandfather Abraham Ganibal was also a very renowned military leader in Russia. So, um, and you're like. Oh, and again, yes, we knew. And those are the things, you know, th when I was telling you about the, the high school, uh, primary school education, it's like, those are the things you learn. Maybe when you're younger, when you're 10, 12, you're like, man, I couldn't care less. But the more, like, you spend time in understanding who you are or what, like, communities uh, have done, you're like, in Russia? You know how much it is cold over there? You know? <laughs> Man, I'm still trying to figure out France winter. You know, France winter. <laughs> but and and it's their sense of being like pride of like, oh man, they they made it. You know. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. They triumphed. They succeeded. And um, yeah, I love I love that story because I love I love these stories plural because they really challenge our own expectations. Absolutely. So. There you go. Let's find another country that's super Iran. I know you spoke about Iran, but because uh, I love, I'm not gonna lie, I'm trying to learn Farsi, but it's not easy. But I love the sound of Farsi. Poof, it's not an easy one. But Turkey, let's go to Turkey because of well, it's you know, yeah, challenge so us. Turkey, the, there's a big 
black Turkish population still present in Turkey today. So estimates put them at 20 to 25,000 and they are mainly settled on um, in Izmir, on the, well, across the Aegean coast, but there's a, a big black population in the city of Izmir in particular. Um, and they are settled on the Aegean coast because uh, Turkey also participated in the slave trade, obviously not the transatlantic slave trade, but the Ottoman Empire slave trade. The Ottoman Empire, should I say, trafficked enslaved Africans to Turkey, specifically to the Aegean coast, to work on cotton plantations, even though slavery was then abolished eventually in Turkey with the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1918. Many of the black communities still reside in the Aegean coast where their ancestors were formerly enslaved and worked on plantations there. And it's really cool because even a lot of like Turkish people don't really realize the extent of the black population. Um, but there's been famous black Turkish people throughout history. There's a famous singer called Esmeray who's beloved by the Turkish people. She's a black Turkish woman. She passed away um, 2002, I want to say. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also love the story of Ahmed Ali Chilekin, who was the first black pilot to fly in World War One. He was a fighter pilot and he was black. He was Turkish. You see pictures of him in his pilot's uniform, you know, sun beside his fighter plane. And he's like a Turkish war hero and he's a black man. So I think all of these all of these things are so like interesting to me. Even now there's a there's an Afro-Turkish association. Um, there's an Afro-Turkish association which works to champion the black community and to provide educational resources for the Afro-Turkish community. A lot of their resources and their materials they have to get from Germany because there's still not so much being produced in Turkey itself, you know, stories and books with black representation, but they're really doing the work. And um, there's actually a festival, please excuse my pronunciation, um, but it's called the Dana Bayrami Festival. It's celebrated, I think, May every year and the Afro-Turkish community come together. It has a tradition, it, it dates back to the time of, like the time of slavery in, in Turkey, when enslaved Africans would meet up and they would sacrifice like a bull, a calf. Dana Bayrami is called like the calf festival. Okay. They don't sacrifice a calf today. It's still a festival which has African heritage. And so it's really seen as a celebration for the black community in Turkey that they have once a year. And the Afro-Turkish Association, which I think was founded in 2009 by a man called Mustafa Olpak, who he's passed, but um, he was one of the founders. And so it's really revived like Afro-Turkish pride, Afro-Turkish tradition, visibility for the community, advocacy for the community. Um, so yeah, they are the black Turkish community is going strong um, and they take a lot of pride in their heritage. That is crazy. I know it's not a, I'm going off script, uh, off script at the moment, but tell me about Iran. So black history in Iran, again, so Iran has a, a history of trading with Africa, which included um, the trade of enslaved African people. The black community in Iran is, is, is old, it's very established. To this day, there's a big black community in Iran. There's also one in Iraq, neighboring Iraq, um, which people don't know necessarily as much about. I don't have a video on Iraq yet, but I do want to make one. And one thing I should mention about Iraq is that uh, for the black communities there is that I don't know if you heard of the Zanj Rebellion. 
the Zand Rebellion was a huge rebellion of Afro-Iraqis or like Africans in Iraq who who rose up and um, create they rebelled and created their own states called the Zanj states within Iraq. And it lasted for, I think it was 15 years before it was um, overturned. So there's a, there's a long-standing black community in Iran, in Iraq, in the whole of the Middle East, really. I also have videos on Yemen. I just made a video on Palestine, which came out uh, last week. So people are always asking me for like videos in uh, Lebanon and Oman and things, which I really want to get to. So yeah, and it's interesting because obviously when we think of Iran or Iraq, we don't think of black history or black faces. Yeah. Um, but they are there and they have been for a long time and, and there's actually if you're interested in Iran specifically there's a an organization which you can find on Instagram and they also have a website and they're called the Collective for Black Iranians Wow. For Black Iranians and they are really doing amazing work in amplifying um, Afro-Iranian narratives so I would really encourage listeners who are interested to check them out the, the Collective for Black That's great. Thanks. That's great. I remember I, I, uh, two years ago, I had uh, spoken with a friend and I was telling her how, how much I wanted to visit Iran at some point. And yet she sent me this BBC link, I think at that time, uh, mm-hmm. trying to explain it. And I remember just seeing black faces, you know what, I'm, like Iran, like don't, not even mixed race, to be honest, like, no, like black, 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 you know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I want to go. No, I want to Like, I want to go there. By the way, this parole episode is not about like we're black and proud. It's like you could be white and proud and you could be Asian and proud, you know, like you could be whatever. It's just like it just so happens that black people don't have this um, opportunity to be proud most of the time. But I think often the it comes from us being told that we don't have a history. Um, yeah. And it's like, actually, we do. And so even these stories of like, use the example of Alexandre Dumas or Alexander Pushkin or Queen Mary from Denmark or, you know, whoever it may be. And we do have a history, like we've been here and we've contributed and it's just really about recognition. And yeah, that's, I think you make an excellent point in that pride in your roots is not to the detriment of anyone else's heritage or anyone else's pride, but it's just really to shine a spotlight on histories and communities that have been overlooked and marginalized and silenced um, historically, which is something that we're trying to, we're trying to, you know, undo that now. We're, we're doing a great job, Baida. We're doing a great job. <laughs> so uh, the last community, because of my listeners and you mm-hmm. recognize yourself, some are hidden somewhere in Manitoba. Honestly, on Anchor, I do see some, some countries and I'm like, how how am i been listening to in this and i'm like i'm blown away because like 70 i don't know for youtube but do you get to see the countries we do yeah yeah sometimes i see countries and i'm like okay i want to get in touch with that person because i believe it's one person or yeah. it two <laughs> how did you get to like how did you manage to hear this australia i know there's a huge like community not huge huge like uh but a community of Burundians, and i'm like i can sense like Hong Kong and at some point it was like this small country somewhere I'm like what (laughs) okay but today we're gonna take care of Canada oh Canada so you know we're quick to say like oh America America US US we do know about the slavery we do understand you know I mean it's out there Mm. Canada 
Canadians are nice. You know, they're soft. They're, you know, and then you're like, tell us more, Faida. Tell us more. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was an interesting one. When I went into the Canada episode, it was one that a lot of people had requested from me. And I wasn't really sure how to approach it because there is so much Black history in Canada. Um, and it's the same reason that I'm still working on my episode for France, for example, because there's so much Black history in France. And it's like the more research I do, the more I discover and it's never ending. And I kind of felt like that with Canada. I was like, so much Canada. So the first recorded Black man uh, in Canada was a man called Mathieu de Costa. He came as an interpreter for the French colonist uh, Samuel Champlain. So he interpreted between French and he also spoke a few indigenous languages. And so he actually came as an interpreter with the French colonizers in 1608. He's kind of credited with being the first recorded um, black person or person of African descent in Canada. And obviously Canada kind of has a unique history because of its proximity to the United States as somewhere well obviously there was a slave trade in Canada perpetuated by both the French and the British but Canada was also in some ways a considered something of a safe haven for African-American enslaved people um, who used the Underground Railroad to travel to Canada and to hopefully escape to freedom and obviously we know Harriet Tubman as one of the pioneers mm -hmm. of the Underground Railroad I think in total estimated 30,000 enslaved Africans or African-Americans uh, escaped from the United States to Canada and settled in Canada in different places. But one particularly interesting settlement, black settlement in Canada historically was a place called Afriqueville. For listeners who've never heard of Afriqueville, the first black presence in Afriqueville that was properly recorded was in 1848 but actually a black presence has existed in Africville for long before that. The, the, the clue is in the name that it's called this, Africville. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like Chinatown, but for Africa. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> but black folks. Wow. And so from at least 1848, and this settlement lasted for, you know, 150 years, but then eventually gentrification happened. That community was very much neglected. Um, and so they had to build their own schools, their own post offices, their own sewerage systems, their own everything, um, because they were very much neglected by, uh, you know, mainstream Canadian authorities. But the, the settlement was um, systematically deconstructed over many years, which ended in 1970. And so this historically black town, um, the residents were bribed, either bribed or in some cases intimidated into um, moving off the land to giving up their homes, everything was demolished so that the area could be gentrified and, and you know, new constructions could be built. Obviously, with hindsight, the Canadian government recognized that this was a complete you know, a violation of the, the residents' rights, that there had been a lot of abuse of like loopholes in the system because obviously these black residents, but they had been settled there for hundreds of years, but not all of them necessarily had the deeds or the, the paperwork for their land because it had been something of an informal black settlement. So they couldn't necessarily prove their history on the land, but obviously they had lived there. And so with hindsight, um, there was, a, I think it's called the Africville Genealogy Society, 
um, double check, but uh, they campaigned for recognition to be given to this community and uh, a certain amount of land and compensation was allocated um, to the former residents of Africville. And there is now an Africville museum. So the community itself doesn't exist anymore, but there is a museum called the Africville Museum, which talks about the history of the settlement and the black history there. So yeah, and there's so many, you wow. know, black Canadian civil rights pioneers. Often when we talk about like black history, we focus on people like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or Rosa Parks, which is great. And those stories are uh, should be told, rightfully so. But I do think that um, more attention should also be given to black activists from other territories. And that includes Canada, where people have been fighting for hundreds of years for the rights of black Canadians. That is amazing, because at the end of the day, you get to realize like, <sighs> COVID showed us that uh, we all move and uh, it's like, oh, but no. Yeah. Black have been everywhere. Everywhere. Been moving everywhere and doing their thing everywhere. So, and although, you know, some of the uh, settlements or, you know, come from slavery or just like, I don't know, some crazy history, it is, you know, it feels good. To be honest, I listen to your videos during my, like, on weekends. Mm. You know, it's like, uh, you're like, I, don't, I, I need something positive. You know, <laughs> no, seriously, because you like black samurai, like seriously. And then I started Googling things. I'm like, oh, there's a basketball player whose name is Hoi something. And I'm like, you learn something like a Chinese Nigerian. And you're like, oh. Yeah, exactly. And this is a long, long history. Um, but one thing I did want to finish with for the um, black history in Canada is that this was something that was very surprising to me. But in 2000, I think it was 2015, there was a big campaign to change a lot of place names in Canada. Uh, names of places, names of rivers, names of um, different areas that contained the N-word, either in French or in English. And... Um, oh, okay. And, yeah. And when like, I, I can say it because it's my podcast. It's like Negroville, basically. Like, yeah. I don't know. Obviously, the N-word in English has... Is a, yeah, in French, it's different. Yeah. yeah. Um, but both of them have negative kind of can have negative connotations. And so there was a there was a petition to change 11 place names. I think specifically in Quebec, 11 place names that either had um, uh, the N word in French or the N word in English, like for real. Like seriously, I don't want to say it, but I'm, I'm tempted to ask because I'm like, there, there could be a street, like a or area where you can see the N word in a name. It's amazing. And we were on maps like it was a normal thing just to have <laughs> right on a map um yeah as you mentioned the connotation is slightly different in french and in english but in english it's extremely negative mm. um and yeah for that reason i don't even want to say the word but um there was this huge petition and it received 2000 signatures and so 11 place names were changed and this was in 2015 so that's not even that long ago and so that's what i mean about is it, you know it's constantly a work in progress <laughs> And um, it's really down to people doing this grassroots activism to have these things, you know, changed and updated. So, yeah, I definitely Google it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> not, not even Google it. I, I want to visit. I'm like, so there was a Negroville. Now it's, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> 2015, my friend, like six yeah. years ago. Yeah, exactly. Not too long. 
there there should be a position i heard of, uh, of that and then it makes me laugh because you know like in uganda and uh, tanzania they're like this like this lake victoria for example mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it's called lake victoria it, it's less uh, stressful for me because west africa is really about the french words like mm -hmm. So many streets and so many cities are in French, and I'm like, you know what? You even have your some countries do have their uh, national anthem in French, and I'm like, I I don't get it, uh, but it's fine. Mm -hmm. So in it, we tend to be like, no, no, no. Let's just put in our language. So, do you feel like with the research you're doing? Because honestly, I, I hope. How do you? No, let me start with this. How do you feel when you do those type of research of? let me do this, let me see Iran, let me, how do you feel when you start and how do you feel afterwards? I think it really depends on the region. So sometimes I'm reading these stories that are so harrowing and so tragic and um, it's, it's heavy and I feel I, it takes energy to be able to finish the videos because the, the images I'm seeing or the things that I'm reading, the injustice, I feel so much frustration and anger. And I do take it personally. And that's why people ask me, so at the moment, I still don't have a video on black history in Belgium. And I will make one one day and a lot of people have asked for it. But the reason why it's been so difficult for me to make a video on black history in Belgium is because obviously the history that Belgium, Belgium has with the Congo is so personal to me and I'm seeing these images of children who have had their hands cut off or you know adults who are holding the hands of their children that have been cut off and um it's awful to me like I dream about it when I sleep like I, I do take it really personally but then you also have these stories that are so uplifting and amazing you know like the black samurai or whoever it might be and I'm like, damn, these people really kick butt. Like they're inspirational to me. And anytime I'm having a bad day, I'm like, I think I'm having a bad day. Like I have no excuse. Yeah. So that's the, the flip side for me is really those stories of triumph and resilience that I love so much. And it's an honor to teach other people about them. Definitely an emotional roller coaster doing this research, but um, something that I'm very, very happy to do. Where do you find your resource? Because Google is fine. And you, 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 um, you talked about the fact that you get in touch with some of the people, you know, some of it's because when I read, when I listen to it, I know that the deep down, like the history, it's, you know, it's sad and it's, you know, but at the same time, honestly, it's like 10 minutes of like, oh, man, as you said, you think you're having a bad day, Alex? It's, you know, <laughs> no, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the research process. So lots of different things. I obviously read a lot. I start by reading a lot online. Um, I look for books that have been written on black history in certain areas. I look for grassroots organizations um, and get in touch with those. And then for books, I will usually try and contact the author and see if I can interview them or see if they can send me any sources. For grassroots organizations, um, I will. Uh, so for example, the one I just did on Palestine, I just did a, black, a video on black history in Palestine. There's an organization called the African Community Society in Jerusalem, and they are Palestinians who are of African heritage who, who work with the community there and obviously have a connection past and present because their grandfathers, great-grandfathers came from Africa to Palestine 
today also are working with the youngest generation of Afro-Palestinians. So they have this perspective that travels from the past to the present and influences the future. And so I reached out to like the community leaders, the, the founders of these organizations. Two days ago, I just had an interview with an anti-racist platform in Poland, you know, to speak about their communities there. So I do really try and reach out. And then the other thing I also do, uh, maybe as a millennial, is I follow hashtags on social media because when people are using hashtags like hashtag Afro-Palestinian or hashtag Afro-Polish, it's usually black people from those countries who are proud of their African heritage who are using those hashtags because they want to make visible that aspect of their identity. So I'll follow them and then I'll be like, you know, I'm making this video about black history in Palestine. Do you mind if I speak to you? And they'll be like, yeah, you know who you should speak to? You should speak to my grandfather or you should speak to my friend or you should speak to this person. And they're sending me like pictures of their, um, of their, their relatives their grandparents, their great grandparents, they're like, look, you know, this is my grandfather. He came to Palestine from Chad. This is him when he arrived and, you know, all of these things. So people are sending me really personal information, which for me is such an honor. I had a woman reach out today and she's, uh, she's a black Cypriot from Cyprus. And she was sending me, you know, pictures of her family. And, and I had a lady from Sri Lanka who was like, I'm Afro Sri Lankan. And, you know, I, here's pictures of my family from Sri Lanka. So it becomes a really personal project because the people that I contact, they are invested and they want to see their communities represented. All of that to say that the research process, there is the academic side and, um, you know, the, the historical side. And there also is this personal aspect of just connecting with people on social media. Nine times out of 10, when I contact someone and say, you know, I found your profile and I'd love to interview you about this. Um, nine times out of ten people are like yes please and here's ten other people you can speak to wow <laughs> it really just follows on from there talk about a network here like so basically I know uh you told me about the Iranians so if I go to India and I'm looking for like a black community over there because I'm pretty sure when it comes to food for example we're pretty similar you know I'm pretty sure I'll be able to eat something I'll be like oh it just reminds me of I don't know Ivory Coast or South Africa or traveling with the black community among black community and uh and from home <laughs> and yeah and oh my god talk about um that's <laughs> a point you you talk about uh the Afriville of Afrikville and they remind me of this I, I cannot finish the podcast without saying this Matonge in Brussels is mm. Congoville is oh, yeah it, oh my like I, have you been there have no been, <gasps> we need to go there like <laughs> Don't wear your, your DRC uh, t-shirt because everybody will talk to you like Lingala. <laughs> and, but when once you go there, you know it's Congo. Like I've never yeah. been to Congo properly, but I've visited Congo. Yeah. Two things happen. The food. Mm-hmm. Man. Like brochette, like like no other, like uh fufu. I don't know how you say that. Like uh, I don't even know, like the food. Anyway, food is perfect. Yeah. Is perfect. And then second, hair. When you need to do hair and buy products for like, everything happens there. People can, can catering for their communities, and that's so beautiful. Is that um, things like hair, religion, uh, music, all of these things? I mean, we call it culture, but I don't think that it does it justice because these are forms of resistance. These are ways in which, whether it's in Cuba, Brazil, 
Iran, wherever, these are ways in which black communities there have held on to their African heritage through their food, through their music, through their hairstyles, it's forms of resistance. And so that's something that I love to explore. So definitely we'll be going to Matonge and come on. And <laughs> I'll, I'll link you I'll link you with uh because I, I did a couple of episodes before. So I have like um an Israeli um a black Israeli so he's from Ethiopia. Have a video on Israel so people check it out. <laughs> yeah absolutely and there's huge this huge Jewish community back in Ethiopia for those who don't know you should know come on. And I have a friend who who I mean I interviewed her because she's doing some work research on black uh I don't know if you can see it. Can you call it? Like, anyway, the black, uh, the way you see black in culture and something, it's in French. But she spoke about the, the hairstyling and the whole trauma that came from whatever area. And for those who are from Africa, it's different. But I learn a lot because in Africa, like in my hometown, it's more like, you need to take care of your hair because it's messy. And, you know, yeah. da, 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 da. in other spaces, it's more like, again, I'll go back to Ethiopia again. They will spend three hours on hair. And I'm like, I don't have that time. <laughs> just, just don't. Make that time. <laughs> yeah, just keep telling me that. I'm like, uh, I'll pay for someone to help me out. But there is a history there. Like, there's a connection with family roots. And then in the upcoming weeks, actually, I have um, someone who's really, who's, I think his master's, I don't know, his research is about hair, black yeah. hair. And it's about, you know, how, I mean, you've heard the stories of, um, enslaved African women braiding seeds and grains of rice into their hair. You've heard the stories of um, women braiding maps of escape routes into their hair, gold, emeralds, precious stones under their head wraps. So all of these things are forms of resistance. And I really feel like in some ways the word culture, like black culture, it doesn't go deep enough. Um, and it's those it's those symbols of resistance that I, I I'm so proud of and thrown <laughs> away by. So I'm really looking forward to that episode with your friend that has done all yes. this. Yes. And what what's for you what's for you then? What's in the future? Let's just say we're like starting August. Mm -hmm. The future of freedom is mine. I hope it's bright, but at the moment, you know, I'm still working two jobs. I work a week job and a weekend job, and I do freedom is mine on top of that. So I'm not sure. I really want to make this a full-time thing to be doing Black history. Mm -hmm. But what I would love, because previous, before the prior to the pandemic, I was doing Black history tours in Latin America with a company called Afro Latino Travel. Um, so we were doing Black history tours in Peru, Colombia. They have tours in Cuba and Panama. Um, and I really want to expand that out. So I would love to be establishing Black history tours in Turkey with the Afro Turkish Association in India with various um, Afro-Indian organizations, you know, wherever. I want people to be able to go to South Korea or to go to Russia and to be able to do Black history tours there. So my goal really moving forward is to open up that side of tourism for people to have the option to do Black history tours when they travel to these places and for countries where they already exist. Uh, I would love to collaborate, this is what I'm working on now, to collaborate with people that already run Black History Tours and for countries where they don't exist, like there was not one in Peru before I established one, then I want to establish those tours there. And so when people travel to all of these countries, they have the option if they're interested to learn about Black History and to connect with Black communities there 
and most importantly of all, to put money into black communities, to be eating at black owned restaurants, to be staying at black owned hotels, to have, you know, black tour guides and black historians, to be visiting black history museums. Like for example, the Black History Museum in Peru is completely free and it's in the city center. And so everyone's going to the historic center to see all of these old buildings, the cathedrals, this, that, and the other. And they don't realize that 10 minutes down the road is a black history museum that's free and people aren't going to the museum. And it's crazy to me because it's like, you've come all the way to Peru and you don't even go 10 minutes down the road to the black history museum. So this, and it's because people don't know that it's there. Um, so I'm really trying to put these things on the map and open up travel um, in that way. And I just say that once you're done with establishing whatever you need to establish, we'll be there cheering for you. And uh, I mean, if need be, you'll have my ad spots for parole because people really need to know that uh, mm. it's really great. Like you can, I mean, food wise, just maybe and that's one thing I liked about London as well, maybe because Paris, um, I don't know, Paris, Châtelet and um, <laughs> Château, which is Afrikeville. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, but I realized like in, uh, in London, it's more really diverse, like, and somehow I want to visit, like the last time I visited, I wanted to see something that I wasn't used to, like in, in, in France. And I feel like if you go to India, you have all these beautiful things you can um, see. But mm -hmm. then again, I would love to see, like, honestly, I would like to see, like, an Indian family who looks like me. Like you. And be like, what's your story? You know, what I mean? like, my curiosity will be really, uh, like, uh, peaking at that time. And I feel like there's these opportunities for even white people, to be honest, to be like, what? I never... Never, and that's the problem too. You go, it goes back to what you learn at school, what you heard from, you know, and breaking all these barriers. So, Faida, that's for sure. You have my uh, my cheering and whatever you, it needs to be. And I'll link everybody if you need my network. I'll be happy to link uh, everything. So, with everything you said, I'll link your free uh, your YouTube channel for sure. If you want to donate, because. Things are not for free, and I want to see a studio soon. I don't know. I'm building one, so I know it's not an easy feat. So you can focus on that and be a media company, media owner, and media mogul. Yes, teaching Black history. And I just want to say a huge thank you to you for reaching out and sharing your platform with me. And I hope that your viewers have enjoyed and learned something. And if they're interested in Black history in different countries, then please do check out Freedom is Mine on YouTube. And we're also on Instagram. Um, and if you have places that you would like to see covered that I haven't covered yet, then please reach out to me, send me information, send me links, and we'll just keep growing this, <laughs> this resource. Absolutely. And the thing, just to finish, the moment you finish France and Belgium, oh my goodness, I think you'll do like four or five parts of four or five <laughs> subsections of seven and ten because there's a lot to cover. Yeah, I'd be like, part five. <laughs> seven. Like seeing 80, be like, what? It's and coming. I have like so many documents in my computer. Of course you do. And one thing that I want to see though, it's, it will be the first World Cup, the 98. I remember that one, although I was 10 at some point. It was called Black Blomber. Uh-huh. Yes. And yeah. at some point I was like, you know what? Because I wanted Brazil to win and I was like, oh, you know what? It's it's Zidane. It's it's African. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
the second World Cup, Trevor Noah said as well. It's like Africa won the World Cup, and I was like, nah. I was not cheering for France again, but. <laughs> so, it's, oh, they had to deal with a lot. So yeah, thanks a lot, and uh, have a great day in London. Until we see face to face, maybe soon. Yes, exactly. À la prochaine. À la prochaine. Ciao. Ciao, ciao.